Welcome to the Sober Nation FM podcast, where we're putting recovery on the map. I'm your host, Jonathan Sylvester. This show is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Do you want to take your recovery to the next level? Do you want more support, community, and fellowship? Sobriety Engine is an incredible free online community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. You can get a ton of great tips, resources, and guidance to help you succeed in recovery and in life. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. Sober Nation FM is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle all while supporting your sobriety, then you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave a review. Nation, let's hop right into today's episode. Today, I'll be speaking with author and speaker, Mary Fran Bontempo. Thanks for coming on the show, Mary. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. I'm happy to have you, and I certainly want to talk about your work, but first, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your story, because although you aren't in recovery yourself, you're the mother of someone who is. Yes. And I think it's very important to share a family perspective of addiction and recovery with our audience wherever possible as well. So your son struggled with a heroin addiction, correct? That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Among among other things, it 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 I think uh, uh, the the pinnacle of it, if you will, was that. But of okay. course, there were other things that led up to that. Got it. Okay. And, and so, if we could just rewind, if you could kind of take us back, where does all of this where does all of this start? So, um, you know, I I could go back to to my my thoughts about what prompted this, and sure. and and. The only thing that I can, you know, David had a really happy childhood. We were, we had none of this um, that was uh, prevalent or obvious in anybody's family where this was like behavior that he saw and was modeled for him. It was none of that. Okay. Um, I honestly think that for whatever reason uh, that, that he, as he became a teenager and went through all the stuff that teenagers go through, um, felt that for some reason he wasn't going to measure up. And to whatever standard he thought he was supposed to measure up to. I mean, obviously we raised our kids with, you know, you have to do your best all the time, but there was never any, you have to be a doctor, a lawyer. There's never any of that. We just wanted them to do their best. But um, for whatever reason, David, I always say this, had some kind of a hole in him that needed filling. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a therapist. I'm not a a, a doctor. I, I wouldn't presume to know what that is for anyone, but I think it's a fairly common thing with people who turn to um, substance abuse, that there's something they're trying to fix Mm. or fill or something within themselves that they can't figure out how to do that with, you know, a traditional lifestyle and they end up going there. So we knew that David, David struggled um, with drinking for a long time. And that okay. started when he was a teenager. Um, so as I said, you know, it was heroin, but there were a whole lot of other things that kind of lead, led up to that. And mm-hmm. the alcohol was where it started. Um, and it progressed. It just progressed. Okay. Um, and, and if I could just stop you real quick. So yeah. you said there was a, a drinking issue going on. And, mm-hmm. and I'll just say right off the bat, parallels with my own story you know great family 
no addiction, you know, in the household or in the family at, at all that I was aware of, um, you know, all, all of that. So kind of, and I think we hear that more and more, right? Like this, mm-hmm. this is something that affects everyone. Um, you know, although some people may be predisposed a, a little bit more, if you will, it, it affects everybody, right? So when this drinking was going on as a teenager, was this something that I know now you're aware of it, but were you aware of it at the time? Was it, um, or is this just something he kind of clued you in on later on? Well, I think early on, we weren't aware of it. We were certainly, let me just say this. We were certainly never aware of it to the degree that we would have been aware of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think the danger is, and this is, this is something that I found when I've talked to a lot of people, the danger with some of this, these early warning signs are that first of all, we think of some of these things as a rite of passage. Oh, he's a kid. Oh, he's a boy. Oh, you know, they're going to experiment. They're going to drink, whatever. But what happens as a parent, and this was something that I found very common, was with was that I always say the two closest companions in crisis are distraction and denial. Hmm. You, you can't look this stuff square in the face. You can't imagine that you're going to end up at a certain place. So you deny it and then you distract yourself with other things. Oh, well, you know, it's just a phase. Oh, he's just a kid. Oh, you know, well, he had a problem back then, but it was an isolated incident. So I think you practice that because, you know, as a parent, you raise your kids to be a certain way and you hope they'll turn out that way. But when things start to go south, it's very hard for a parent to look at that and go, this is going to be bad. I got to step in now. Mm-hmm. So we distract ourselves from it and we deny it. And unfortunately, that's what I did until okay. it got really, really bad. Can you share maybe a looking back on your story and, and you've uh, written and, and talked a lot about it. So obviously you've gotten to get a really good look at this stuff. Is there a particular incident or moment that you can think about where it was like, okay, red flag, probably should have taken a little different action there. Total denial. Yep. Well, there were, um, there was a time when he was in college and he got into a fight with, with a roommate and we ended up taking him to the hospital because he was clearly impaired. And I didn't know what the heck he was impaired with. When we got him to the hospital, they wanted him to take a urine test so they could Mm -hmm. figure out what the heck was going on. And he was in the bathroom for a long time. And I happened to be in the same, you know, waiting room. And the technician rapped on the door and said to him, is everything okay? What are you doing? And he said, I'm trying to figure out how to not have to pee in this thing, but give you what you need. So right there, I'm like, oh my God, what did this kid do? Right. right. So, you know, the, the issue also becomes that when kids go away to college or, you know, they start living those kind of separated semi-adult lives Mm -hmm. from the family, you want to give them a certain amount of autonomy. So you kind of think, all right, I kind of, where is my, where's the privacy barrier, which I have since torn down completely. There is no privacy barrier. (laughs) When you think there's something going on with your kid, privacy is a Mm non-issue. But at the time, you know, it was, he's my oldest Mm -hmm. and everything with him was a first. So, you know, it's a real balancing act until something happens and you just kind of have to pray that what happens to tip the scales Mm -hmm. um, to where we got to step in on this 
when something happens, um, you have to hope that it's not bad enough that you can still step in and do something about it. So sure. that was probably the biggest moment. And yet, I will say that wasn't the time where we finally had to step in. We had to get to an even bigger crisis. Yeah. And, and so that's what I want to get to here. What was that tipping point? What was the moment where it was just like, okay, uh, we, we've got, we've got to do something about this or else we might not be able to, like you just described. Yeah, exactly. So on mother's day, mother's day, I want to drive the point home that this was mother's day, mm -hmm. um, of 2010, we were at my mom's house and, um, you know, we knew that David was, there, there was something going on. We knew something was going on. He had had this other incident, but as you well know, anybody who is in the throes of addiction is a master manipulator oh, yeah. and a master liar mm -hmm. and you know, very good at subterfuge, very good at hiding things. So of course, you know, he would give us a million excuses. And I think again, because we didn't want to believe it, we believed his excuses for his behavior. But then finally on Mother's Day of 2010, um, I had walked out of my the room everybody was in um, only to hear a big commotion coming from that room again. I ran back in to see David shaking uncontrollably on the couch. Wow. And we called um, the EMTs who came in and con continued to ask him what he had taken. And at that point, I'm like, oh, he, he just, he couldn't have been this stupid again. Well, here, when they finally got him out to the ambulance, because he refused to answer inside, he admitted that he had overdosed on a painkiller that he had ingested because he couldn't get his hands on heroin that day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when we got him to the hospital, the doctor said to us, uh, you know, if this kid makes it, that's the first big slap in the face. He may need a liver transplant because what he ingested was very high in acetaminophen. Wow. And if we can't reverse the effects of this, he might need a liver transplant. So um, that was that was the moment where I was like, OK, that's it. We're mm -hmm. you know, we we may have a chance to still save him here. And that's it. There's no more denial. I got to look this square in the face. Wow. Wow. So, you know, our, our stories are all a little different. Uh, my story, thankfully, didn't get to that point, although I certainly had my moments not trying to differentiate myself, you know, I'm, I'm not unique here. Um, but but I have had some time, you know, uh, over seven years into sobriety now, to really get a better look at, at specifically what my mom was thinking during all this. I'm really close to my mom, definitely a mama's boy. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, and, and I'm just thinking as I'm listening to you, you know, she knew something was going on and, uh, and, and I would say a lot of the times, even though I knew I was struggling with a drug addiction problem, I would say, I don't know. And I meant I, I was being honest because in a, in a large part, I, I really didn't know. I was trying to fill that, that hole that you described. Um, and, and although my mom is, you know, she wasn't totally clueless when she kind of got to the point where, where you just described, okay, we have to do something. It was just kind of this alarm reaction. You know, she, she was for the most part, really clueless about what I was dealing with, what all was going on, how serious it was. So what, what were your first few steps? Like after, so you, you get to this moment where it's like, okay, what now we really have to do something about this what were the first few steps? I mean, because I'm sure there was just a huge 
you know, learning curve, if, if anything. Mm -hmm. So what did you start to actually do? Well, I mean, I am very good at, finally, I'm very good at admitting when I don't know anything about something. So I went right to Google. I mean, I, I literally went right to, you know, addiction um, and looking up places that were nearby because I knew one thing when, with him in the hospital that he was not coming home. Okay. I was not going to bring him home for one simple reason that I knew at that point that I was in way over my head mm -hmm. and I was not going to be the one who was going to be able to do anything to this kid. I mean, this had been going on in some form or another, whether it was with the drinking or with whatever for years where we were trying to, you know, we, I had him in therapy and, and, you know, we had the talks to him and let's bring in a trusted family friend and all. Mm -hmm. But when, when that thing happens, there's a thing that happens in these situations. Right. And when that thing happens, that's the point at which you got to go, I'm out of my element. I need help. I need experts. So at that point, um, I just did a ton of research the night that I stayed at the hospital the first night when my husband came to relieve me, I went home and I hit the computer and just found a place that was nearby um, in, in our area that we could drive him to because I didn't you know, this was my first foray into that world that had a very good reputation for treatment. And I said to him, here's your choice. You either can get on that. There happened to be a bus going by outside the window. I said, you can get on one of those buses and go to one of your so-called friends' houses and I'll bring you your stuff. Or you can get in the car with me and dad and you're going to treatment. Mm -hmm. um, it was that line in the sand. And what I would encourage people to recognize is when you get to that moment where your gut says to you, you got to do something, you got to do something. You can't, you, you know, we, we tend to, one of the best friends that people have is our brains. And one of the worst friends we have is our brains because logically we can talk ourselves out of things. But when you get that feeling that somebody in your family has a real problem and you've got to do something, then you've got to do something. Wow. And that's put up your hand and ask for help. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's well said. And I know that's, that's tough to do. I, I will ask because it sounds like you handled everything pretty textbook style, even though you were just thrown into this in the sense that it was, Hey, you're either going to treatment or, or you're going on your own. And I'm sure that was, that was very difficult to do. Um, looking back at, at those initial moments, and I'm just going to hit you with this here. Is there anything that you feel like maybe you should have done a little bit differently or, or that you would have done differently now? I'm sure there is, but is there oh something? Oh my gosh. What, what, did you what notice, was... did you notice my eye roll? Like, like everything, you know, yeah, everything. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what, what was kind of the main thing, like the overarching, uh, you know, just to sum it up, like what, what do you think you would have done a, a little bit differently in those initial, uh, in those initial moments? There? Honestly, it's exactly what I just said. I would have listened to my gut sooner. Okay. I mean, I'm not stupid. I knew right, something right, right. was going on. I knew he was lying to me, but I couldn't face the, um, the magnitude of what I really knew was going on. Hmm. So I allowed him to manipulate me. I allowed him to mislead me. I allowed him to um, kind of 
tamp down my fear and allow me to live in the land of magical thinking, you know, where everything's, everything's fine. I'm just having a rough time, mom. I'll be fine. I allowed that even though my gut was screaming at me, this is not good. So uh, my honestly, the thing that I would do differently is I would have paid attention to my instincts sooner despite all of his protesting that I'm fine and you're smothering me and blah, 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 you know, all this stuff that they say to, to not allow you to get into their space because mm-hmm. they want to be able to live their addicted lifestyle. I would have listened to my gut way sooner yeah. and gotten him into treatment way sooner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's just, again, I find it so interesting and I'm just thinking about my own mom during this because it is a a balance right like you don't want to you know in your mind it's and my mom still has so much guilt about all of this you know and um if you know if she had done things differently then then i wouldn't have gone down this road and i've told her a million times mom look like there is literally nothing i was headed this direction you know i i was headed this direction had nothing to do with, with you. Um, and so now David, um, not to just gloss over this too much, but can you give us an abbreviated version of just what him giving, uh, getting into recovery looked like? Mm -hmm. So I think there's also kind of a personality that goes along with the addictive lifestyle. Like David would go all in whatever he was into. He was all in. Yeah. So when he first got into treatment, he was like going to be the president of the treatment house and all this other (laughs) stuff, you know, and he, and he did, you know, he did. Um, He will tell you, and he's right, that at the very, at the very beginning of this, when Mm -hmm. he got in, it was not about committing though, at that point, it was about all right, I'll go to treatment, mainly because my mother says I can't go home. <laughs> right, right. And right. then, all right, I'll take the meal that they're giving me. So for him, which I think is the way anyone who is dealing with addiction should treat it, you don't take addiction on all of it. You mm. go, okay, I'll go to treatment. Okay, I'll attend group. Okay, I'll eat lunch with these people. You know, just that very, very next step. And that actually is some is a philosophy that I ended up adopting with the whole 15 minute master thing. But um, he he jumped into it. I mean, he was all about it. But unfortunately, he was jumping into it still with that addicted mindset. Okay. So um, after he went out of uh, the inpatient rehab treatment, he lived in a recovery house for a time. And, you, you know, that is a natural next step for some people. He was there for like three months or so. And again, unfortunately ended up maybe forming friendships with people who weren't really committed to sobriety. Sure. When he finally came home, um, it wasn't too long before I knew something else was not quite right. Um, But again, he was holding down a job. He seemed to be doing okay, you know, and uh, again, didn't listen to my gut as, as I should have. Um, and then another incident happened where he was accused of taking money. Uh, and I, I got him alone in one of the rooms in our house. And I said, are you having trouble again? And he said, yeah. So this time the difference was that I made him make the phone call to someone that he knew to get help. And he made the phone call, but then he said to me, can I maybe just go away with you down the shore for a couple of days? I was like, no, no. 
I'm not doing this again. So he had to go to inpatient treatment a second time. Um, and I know a second time, like for some people, it's the, you know, the 58th time that it they is. finally get it. It is. Um, and uh, but but for whatever reason, and I can't presume to know what it was, the second time it clicked with him and he was like, I'm I'm done. I'm tired of living that way. And he began to live a sober lifestyle from that. Um, and then when he came home that second time, there were marked changes in him. For example, he wanted he now he didn't have his driver's license either because he had had a couple of DUIs. So I was driving him all over the place but I would take him to meetings at least once a day. And he also wanted to go to church five days a week. So that's what we did. Um, so it was, a but, but he, the emphasis here is he had to be the one to commit to it. Yeah. 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 That makes a lot of sense. Um, from an outside perspective, what, what do you think maybe was the biggest thing that he was struggling with early on in sobriety? Um, maybe, maybe he shared some of that with you. I think the biggest thing, and I think it's the thing that most people struggle with is it, that it really requires a complete reinvention of a lifestyle that they lived for a long time. Hmm. Um, you know, that was, was driven by a need that they had, and now they have to rebuild that, that life that they used to have, um, with, with people who are sober and, um, I think for David, that was the, the hardest thing. David was used to being the center of attention. He always tried to be the center of attention. Not, and certainly not everybody in sobriety is like that. But for him, it was a matter of subjugating that need and being willing to learn from other people and being willing to, once again, you put your hand up and you go, I'm an idiot. I don't know what I'm doing. All I know is that I really, really need help. And fortunately, when he went to meetings, which was huge for him, and I would recommend it to everybody going through that, um, he found a bunch of guys who were a little bit older who weren't afraid to tell him he was acting like an idiot. And he says this all the time. He's so grateful for the people who didn't care about his feelings. They cared about saving his life. Yeah. Wow. Wow. My, I mean, my name might as well be David at this point. Because <laughs> you, you just described me. And I've said so many times, many times on this show, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful that I finally came to the realization that, that I didn't know. I was always Mr. Like my mom would be giving me some great advice or someone would be giving me some great life advice or advice about something that, that I knew zero about, nothing about. And the first response, I would cut them off and say, oh, I know. <laughs> and, and I didn't know. I knew yeah. nothing. And I, and I certainly didn't know anything about how to, how to get and stay sober. And there were uh, some people in my life that are still in my life that, like you said, would have rather hurt my feelings a little bit than to not just tell me what I needed to hear. And, yeah. and I'm very, very grateful for, for those people. And um, and I think that's just kind of the way it, it should, it should be, um, yeah. in large part, because this is, this is a life or death situation. Yeah. Um, now I, I want to ask you about your, uh, well, first, let me ask you this. Uh, you guys decided at some point, or you decided at some point that, that you would share uh, about this and how, how did it get to that point? Because you, you, you speak about this. You, you've written about it, different things. Obviously, you and I are sitting here talking about uh, your story and your experience. What, 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 how did, how did it get there? 
Well, I think um, certainly I would not have shared anything if David was not okay with that because uh, his sobriety was the thing that was the most important to me. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's everything. When you have a kid who, who, as you said before, this is a life or death situation. Um, so if it was not okay with him and if it had been any risk to his sobriety at all, I certainly would not have shared, but I honestly think it was the opposite thing. I think, um, you know, when he was, um, in that world for, for a while, and in fact, he's in the recovery world now, he works in the recovery field. Okay. Um, so at some point in his mind, there became a commitment to, Hey, I am lucky that I got out of this. And if I can help anybody else to not go to that place, then I'm going to do it. So once he was able to make that commitment, I, um, I felt, I think a little bit of what your mom felt certainly earlier on that whole guilt and shame thing. Yeah. And then after a while, I was like, you know what? I was Marsha Brady. Like he didn't get any of this from me. Mm -hmm. So you have to release those parts of it, that shame and that embarrassment. And I will say this, that idea of being, you know, like you said earlier, wanting to be the person who knows everything and not admitting you don't know stuff, that's a heavy burden to bear. It is. When yeah. you finally, when you finally go, you know what? I'm just really a dope when it comes to a lot of things. Mm -hmm. But here's what I do know. So when I realize that there's plenty of stuff I don't know, but this I have had experience with and I mm -hmm. do know it and I can help people maybe not have to go so far down that path as I did and suffer as long, then that became something that I was very easy. Uh, it was very easy for me to commit to that. Mm. This was kind of like a mission. Okay. God let us get through this and he let us get through it with some knowledge and some resources. It's our duty to go out and responsibility to go out and help other people. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Now I want to ask you about one of your books, the 15 minute master. What yeah. is all, what, what's that all about? And what is the goal of this book? So when we first started um, down the, the road of, of addiction and recovery and all that kind of stuff with mm -hmm. David and, and our story became a little bit known to some people, we certainly didn't, you know, share it over to everybody. Some very well-meaning friends would say to us, oh, you have to take it one day at a time. <laughs> My husband and I would look at each other. We'd be like, one day you have clearly never lived with an addict because one day might as well be a million years with the number of things that could change mm. between their mood, between what's going on. So we would be like, we can't take it a day. We can't do a half a day. We can't even do an hour. We can do 15 minutes. So that became the way we lived through that crisis. It was just get through the next 15 minutes. When we were in full-blown crisis mode, it was just get through the next 15 minutes at a time. And then when things kind of settled down a little bit, I realized further down the road that I was kind of asking myself questions within that 15 minute time period. Like, what can I actually do here? What knowledge skills do I have? What resources do I have? What can I actually do? And then I would ask myself, well, what should I do? Because just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean you should. Right. I mean, there were times I could have swooped in and, you know, saved David and done things and all, but that I shouldn't necessarily have done that. And then the third question was, okay, what am I going to do? So it ended up being a process that I stumbled through during the worst of David's addiction and realized well after the fact that it was something that other people could use 
in, in navigating their way through addiction. You just got to master the next 15 minutes. And that doesn't mean you succeed all the time. It just means you survive sometimes. Yeah. So that's what that book was based on. Okay. My experience in addition to the process that sort of developed over that time to help me and my family get through that. Wow. Wow. So I, I'm guessing that a, a lot of what you talk about and, and is in this book is really how to support your, your loved one, uh, but also yourself uh, yes. during this whole process. So, so how, how did you, and how does someone, a family member that is dealing with this, how did they practice self-care? How did you practice self-care? Um, one of the biggest things that I did was sleep. Hmm. I slept, but I took naps. I, you know, whenever I could sleep, when I could sleep, because that was the only time that I wasn't terrified. Mm. Um, and it was the, the, what my body physically needed to, to, you know, survive that time period. So sleep was a big one. The second one, and I, and I would tell women this and families this over and over is, you know, with what your mom went through that, that drop the rock idea. Mm -hmm. You can't lug this thing around with you. You, you simply cannot, you, whatever happened before, whatever got you to this point is, is as close to irrelevant as it could be because you can't do anything about it. So drop the rock, just leave it yeah. and figure out what you can do now. And if within that next 15 minutes, there is one little thing that you can do in terms of self-care that's what you do. You take that, you take that little moment to do whatever that is. Um, you know, lock yourself in the closet and eat the chocolate that you hid in the handbag. That's what I used to do. <laughs> whatever it takes. Right, right. But you you have to release yourself from the shoulda, woulda, couldas. Mm -hmm. That's the that's a that's huge. Just release yourself from the shoulda, woulda, couldas. Think about where you are now and think about what you need to fuel yourself to get through to the next part of this. It ain't easy, but that's why you bring it back down to basics. Yeah. Yeah. And I really like that breaking it down uh, to, to 15 minutes. I, I'm a process guy for sure. Yeah. And, 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 you know, for me, I'm also a 12 step guy. So, you know, going into something where uh, it's giant on the wall and numbered out, uh, you know, that, that worked for me. So I really like the idea of, of this too, just breaking yeah. it down to that 15 minutes and, yeah. and asking yourself these, these basic questions. That makes a lot of sense. Now you also have a book called Brilliantly Resilient, which you yep. have uh, right behind you on the yep. wall there. Right I like there. that. So how would you actually define res resiliency? You know, I think what resilience is, is the opportunity to come back from a crisis, first mm -hmm. of all, still standing, and second of all, hopefully with a little bit more knowledge and experience that helps you move forward through the next time. Um, my, my partner, my buddy and I that I do Brilliantly Resilient with, she is raising two blind kids. They were wow. born blind and she has a sighted daughter. But the, she and I realized in talking about our, our respective, we call them sucker punches and train wrecks, mm that there was in fact a process to kind of work through this stuff. And, um, you know, the resilience part is taking a look at what are your values? 
what what are your core values that are really important to you? When when you get hit with a crisis, it takes so many things away from us, but it's also an opportunity to really get to the root of who you are and who you want to be. Um, the second thing is like, how are you looking at this thing? What is your perspective on it? And, you know, who do you have around you? Who are your tribe members that you can use to help you out and give you uh, either a hand up or some information or whatever? So resilience is about tapping into those things that will help you move forward. To me, it's not about just standing up and staying in the same place because I want to get out of the way. Like, I don't, I don't want the next sucker punch to find me in the same spot. Yeah. Um, and then the, you know, the brilliance part of it comes through when you recognize what your skills and those things are that you use over and over again to get out of that. How can you use them to create something else moving forward? Well, I really like that. You use the word value and I'm always trying to extract as much value for our audience as possible. And I, I think you've given a lot of that today. So I appreciate that. But if you could get a little more specific there in terms of how, resiliency can be useful to uh, family members of, of addicts? What, what are some things maybe you could think of there? Well, again, I think the first thing is to bring it back to basics. Okay. You know, when you're dealing with addiction, again, as we talked about uh, prior, you, you can't take the whole thing on. You, mm. you just can't. So let's break this down. What is the one thing that we need? This whole, this whole idea of 15 minute master, it's, it's, it's the 15 minutes, the three, three major questions, but then one action step. That's all that you're doing. You want to bring it down to one step at a time and not think about solving the whole problem. What is one thing that you can do either today, either in the next 15 minutes, and it could be as big or as small a thing as works in the constraints of the moment. Uh, it could be make that phone call to that, you know, that place where there's an expert that you could, you could talk to. Make a phone call to a friend that you know either has similar experiences or has connections to similar experiences. This is not a time to worry about what people think about you. This is a time to put your hand up and say, look, I, we need help. And here you, and you don't have to share the dirty details of every right, single right. thing. You know, you just go, look, I need help. I, I know that, you know, so-and-so can you put me in touch? Um, this is the resilience might be reaching out to those second and third level contacts. Sometimes the people closest to us are not the ones who are going to be the best help in this situation. For a lot of reasons, one of which is if you are the parent or someone else, they're very protective of you and they're angry at the addict. Mm, well, mm. guess what? You're angry at the addict too, but that doesn't help anybody. No, that's a good point. So, you know, sometimes you need to move away from those people who are closest to you um, to reach out and get a hand up with the resilience from somebody else who knows more. Mm. So I think expanding your tribe is a big part of, of resilience because you cannot do this on your own. I like that. Um, one action step in those 15 minutes. And you know what? That action step for you may be closing your eyes and taking a nap. Whatever gets you through to that next place. We're talking about moving incrementally here, not in leaps and bounds. Hopefully that moment comes, but you don't get there by leaps and bounds. You get there by incremental movement. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I do want to ask if maybe, and I think you've shared a couple already, 
that kind of what your own personal recovery, quote unquote, looks like today, um, you know, in terms of uh, just doing what you need to do for your for your own self-care. And I, I think it sounds like obviously sharing your experiences is part of that. But what does that look like today for you, just your own uh, self-care? And um, yeah, yeah, what does that look like? Well, I, I, I think in all truth, um, for me, and again, this is a personal thing that everybody has to figure out what that is for them. I mean, obviously there are the things where you take care of yourself, you know, physically. Um, but, and of course, you know, whether it's walking or exercise or whatever, whatever you need to do, you obviously have to take care of the physical part of you. But I think the mental part is, is just as, if not more important, because, you know, as a parent or a loved one, you do play this over in your head. What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Again, you, you got to get to a point where you drop the rock and, and allow yourself the grace to, first of all, be human. And second of all, to process this, you know, I didn't come to write this book or I didn't come to do any of this stuff days after David got back from his second rehab. This takes a while. This is a huge life changing period of, of life that you have to give yourself the grace to get through it. So I would just say, you know, you have to be kind to yourself. You have to be patient. And I would say this, this is something that I don't think it's talked about enough. When people are in early recovery, they're still crazy because, because it really takes a while for them to rebuild that life and to learn, you know, how to do things, how to function like a, and I'll put this, you know, in air quotes, normal person, whatever mm -hmm. that means. Mm -hmm. That time period, you really have to give yourself grace to get through because early recovery is tough for everybody. It was very hard for me to not look at David every single time he walked in the door. And I did openly, let me see your eyes. Yep. I want to see what you look like. You know, yep. it, it, you have these cellularly implanted memories of horror and terror. It takes a while to work through that. So everybody has to be on the same page of giving themselves the grace hmm. of time and patience and self-kindness and kindness to each other to work through that. Wow. Wow. That's really great advice. I, I love that. So you can learn more about Mary and grab your copy of 15 Minute Master by visiting maryfranbontempo.com. Thanks again for coming on the show, Mary. It was, it was really a pleasure. And, and all truth is these talking about these things helps me to, to reprocess all this and hopefully help other people. And that's really what it's all about. So thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the info from today's episode. Sober Nation FM is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Sobriety Engine is a free online community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. This show is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle while supporting your sobriety, you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And again, whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. Nation, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.